Welcome and thank you for taking the time to listen to the Word of God released through Randolph Barnwell. Randolph is the founder and senior elder of Gate Ministries Durban Central. Be encouraged to access free additional resources for your edification at randolphbonnell.com. Great grace, peace and mercy from Christ be multiplied to you as you listen to this teaching. Well, good morning. Uh, great to be together as the house of the Lord again. Amen. And uh, I want to encourage you to continue ardently in your pursuit after the Lord. Amen. And uh, God, God gives breakthrough to not events, but to consistency. When we are consistently obedient, consistently faithful, um, you never know when your hour of visitation comes in the process of doing God's will. And so you never let up a day, a week. And I want to encourage the house to be faithful, even at uh, Sunday morning gatherings. I know many people are erratic in their attendance, and that, that really must, must come to an end. If ever we're going to build something substantial, we need regularity, faithfulness. Um, if, if you want to be convinced, I have a whole series on my website, which we taught here at the church for over three months, I think. It's called Gathering. Gathering, there's about eight teachings just on the principle, the biblical principle of, of gathering. And there, if I recall, we shared something like 25 principles governing the gathering of the saints. And so when we don't understand the import of gathering, sometimes we wane in our commitment to gathering. So the scripture says in Hebrews, all the more as you see the day approaching, there will be the need to gather, the need to gather. I was listening to a series this week by Sam Solin, and on one of the segments he proved biblically that we will know the day of the Lord's return. Although uh, when Jesus said, no man knows, no angel, nor the Son of Man knows the day of his return, he said that in a particular context that must be understood. But the rest of the New Testament, if you study it carefully, does reveal that there will be, a, that we will have foreknowledge of the timing of his return. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. The question is, did Noah know the day? He did. I think it was seven days or so, or ten days before the flood, the, 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 the clouds gave away. God informed him. So seven, you have seven days, Noah. Right? And as it was in those days, so shall it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. So, and you know, I don't want to get into that teaching now. We can do that maybe in another segment. But there's ample biblical proof that we will know the day. When Jesus said, I did not know the day, he said that in a particular time frame to a particular audience. But there was a point even in his, in his disposition as the Son of God when it was revealed to him, the day. Right? And you would find that in the book of Revelation. So tell your neighbor that's a forthcoming attraction. <laughs> God will not keep his people ignorant about events that concern them directly. It's uncanny to a father to keep, it's not in the nature of a father to keep his people and his sons guessing. Right? And in darkness and in, and in ignorance. So tell your neighbor you will know the day. Right? I like what Sam says, you will not know it uh, early enough to write a book on it. <laughs> Seek to make some money in the process. But you will have sufficient knowledge. But you know what the value of knowing the day is? One of the things why we should know is that the Bible says, and as you see the day approaching, as you see, you will know. You know, the Bible says we are not those that walk in darkness. Amen. Remember the Bible says you'll come as a thief in the night? 
It's only a thief in the night to those in darkness. Read the context. It says his coming is as a thief. And straightway Paul says, but you are not in darkness, brethren, that that day should overtake you as a thief. Amen. Right? So tell you that, but you will have knowledge. That's good news. Don't look at me so sad. I'm telling you good news. <laughs> if I were you, say, wow, I didn't know that. Wow, that's so empowering. At least I will know the day. As it was in the days of Noah, so shall it be at the time of the coming of the Son of Man. You will know the day. Amen. Your Father loves you. He will not keep you ignorant about events that directly concern you. Amen. We have a loving Heavenly Father. I get so excited about these things. But the Bible says, as you see that day approaching, it says, we should give earnest heed to the gathering of ourselves together so that we can encourage each other. Gathering will become all the more critical as that day approaches. Amen. So I want to encourage you to be faithful. Amen. Hallelujah. I want to continue now with the series on accessing grace. Understanding, accessing, and growing in grace. That's the title of this theme. And we've come through several segments thus far. And recently we've been dealing with how humility accesses grace, but pride repels grace. Last week was very prophetic. Uh, I listened to the teaching. I edited the sermon in the week. And even as I was editing in my office, I'm listening to myself preaching. And like I said, it came out in a way that I didn't plan to deliver it. It was definitely the Lord. And God is really speaking to us about being very, very focused in the season about our uniqueness and about our distinction. We, have a dis we are distinct people. We are to be distinguished from the world. And if you're going to delineate between the world and the church, the church must have distinctives that distinguish it from the rest. Maintain our separateness. And last week the Lord spoke to us about pride, and we looked at the case study of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, And I want to encourage you to to extract every residual indication of pride in your heart. It must not be part of your, of your system. Just to list what we've done already. We are focused on, in studying the case studies of King Uzziah and Nebuchadnezzar and others, we've isolated the following indicators of pride. Number one, focus on economic and physical welfare to the total disregard of spiritual welfare. Two, incomplete or partial obedience. These are all indicators of pride. Three, having fame influence but no intention of using it for kingdom advancement. Number four, no mastery over the carnal fleshly nature. Remember of King Uzziah, it says he loved the soil. And that is an open door to pride. Number five, refusal to acknowledge God as the source of your success. Six, independence of God and self-reliance when we feel that we can function without Him and rely upon our own skill and strength. When you are strong, number seven, in your own eyes or strong in your own strength. Number eight, becoming strong, then becoming proud. It's like in your journey to a place of strength, you are humble, but when you become strong, you become proud. Humility must be maintained in one's journey, particularly as you come into a new place of breakthrough. Don't let the point of breakthrough become the start of a process of breakdown. You need greater humility when you've arrived than in the journey, actually. Easy to be humble when you've got nothing. <laughs> but when God provides and you are settled, 
then is the true test of humility. Acting corruptly, the Bible says, he, and when he became strong, he acted corruptly. Be, his, his purity of spirit became soiled and diluted. And he began to compromise on areas that he wouldn't flinch on before. He, be, he expressed unfaithfulness to the Lord, number 10. 11. He crossed the boundary of his function and grace calling. Though being king, he thought he could burn incense as a priest in the temple. So he crossed the boundary of what the grace of God in him allowed him or permitted him to perform within. So he never, uh, uh, it's important not for us to go beyond our grace configuration and what the grace of God in us allows us to do. Paul was an apostle to Jews or to Gentiles. Peter was an apostle to, to Jews. Paul's apostolic ministry was more greatly successful in ministry to Gentiles than to Jews. If he did not go to the Gentile nations and started to focus on ministry to Jews, he would have been frustrated himself and frustrate the people he was trying to minister. So stay within your allotment. Stay within what God has gifted you to do. Be comfortable with your calling. Be comfortable with your grace configuration. Pride says, I know God has called me to do that, but I see my brother successful there, so I want to cross the floor and also engage in, in that domain. That, that's an indication of of pride. Then, number 12, refusal to accept correction. Right? When priests try to correct him, the Bible says, the next one is uncontrollable anger. He became enraged. Right? He became enraged. So we, we uncovered about 13 indicators of pride from the case study of Uzziah. And then, just before we did that, I couched in the following terms, indicators of pride, independence of God, self-reliance, thinking you are strong within yourself, within your own human strength, instead of being strong in the grace of Christ. Paul said to Timothy, my son, be strong where? Be strong in the grace. Come on, say with me, be strong in the grace. Right? Be strong in the grace. And if you know grace, it's the opposite of human strength. It's like when you're weak, then the grace of God finds its maximum uh, potential strength within you. Okay? So when you're weak, then you are strong. Arrogance and inflated self-esteem. This was essentially King Nebuchadnezzar's problem. Arrogance and inflated self-esteem. It was also the King of Tyre's problem, if you heard Mark in the reading this morning. Right? A graphic description of the first man, Adam, that old chapter is. Right? Not, not, not Satan, as many theologians believe it to be true. Graphic depiction of the first man and how he fell from an ascended place in God. Number five, superiority complex and delusions of grandeur. Inflated self-esteem. It's like you, you have a delusion of grandeur and you have a sense of importance higher than what should be. The Bible says each man must think of himself soberly. Right? Don't think more highly of yourself, right? but think soberly as God has dealt to every man the measure of faith. Right? So I mustn't be have an inflated self-concept um, and view others with a sense of contempt. Many people think that they are it. <laughs> if you want the reference to Zephaniah 2 verse 15, I'll read from the King James. It says this, The rejoicing city that dwells secure, that said in her heart, I am it. It's in the Bible. <laughs> the rejoicing 
exultant city, proud for, said, I am it and there's no one beside me. God says, how has she become a desolation, a place of beasts to lie down? Everyone who passes by shall mock or hiss at her. Okay, hiss at her. This particular aspect of pride is very, very, very uh, critical. Um, because it, it subtly comes into us where we start to make comparisons between us and them. It's us and them. Okay? And particularly when you place yourself above them, pride has entered your heart. Now, Jesus in Luke 18 from verse 9 demonstrated this, this particular prideful problem. Listen carefully. He said, he also told a parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. So those who trust in themselves and think they are above others. You disdainfully dis disregard and place everyone beneath you. And in your mind, you inflate your self-importance above everybody else. So he says, two men went into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a publican or a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. How can you start to pray like that? <laughs> and notice he didn't pray to God. He prayed this with himself. Right? You use prayer for internal monologue to boost up your pride. But you're supposed to be praying. <laughs> right? He says, I thank God I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers. And now the other guy is praying next to him. He says, even like this brew next door, this tax collector here. Right? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Faithfully in giving, faithfully in fasting. Then it says, but the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes up to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Amen. You know, I really want to encourage you, um, particularly when you feel that you fail God. You rather just surrender your heart mercy, and appeal to the mercy of God. Um, the Bible says, I've, I've had, I don't know if you've had these experiences, sometimes when you come before God and I couldn't sometimes even lift up my hands and, and head toward the heaven and talk to him. But you, look, you bow your head in absolute appeal for the mercy and the grace, for him to be gracious and merciful to you. Amen. I want to encourage you, never, never permit pride to enter your heart where you, where you rationalize your, your disobedient state. By comparing yourself to others, which in your mind you deem as worse than you. That's pride at its very, very core. I want to encourage you, always, always humble your heart. And never, never establish the rightness of your acceptance with God based upon comparisons with other people. God measures you by His standard and with reference to nobody else. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 7, it says, Therefore, beloved, having these these promises. Let us perfect holiness in the fear of God. In whose fear must I perfect holiness? In the 
fear of God. I mustn't perfect holiness um, in the fear of regai. <laughs> in other words, using regai as standard, therefore I judge my state of holiness. My state of holiness is judged in reference to the standard, which is God himself. Yes, amen. amen. So the moment, listen carefully, the moment we start making comparisons of one toward the other, we've manifested pride. We've manifested pride. Right? So uh, comparisons are odious. Odious. And I want to encourage us not to, to venture there, but to always maintain a humble disposition. Then, the carnal, another expression of pride. I'm going to run through these because I feel I'm taking too long on each one. So I'm going to give you a little truth on each one of these. Is that okay? We're going to be here forever the whole year just talking about pride if we carry on the way we are doing. Okay? But maybe the Lord is camping here because He wants to deal with this thing thoroughly from us. Right? Another expression of pride is the carnal insistence on the use of titles and or references to accomplishment. Right? The carnal insistence on the use of, of titles and or references to your accomplishment, things that you have, things that you have, that you have done. Now, I wrote in my notes, listen carefully, the insistence of being addressed according to the title of a particular office that you hold or function in or you fulfill. At times, notice at times, evidences pride. As you accord greater prestige to yourself, a prestige you deem bound up in the use of the title in reference to you. Now, your authority is not fixed within the title, but in your person and in the identity of your sonship in Christ. And secondly, in your functionality in the specific office or area of responsibility that you are called to. So I, I don't prefer the use of titles. I like my name. My name is Randolph. You don't have to, I won't insist. Notice it's the carnal insistence on a title that's proud. You can use the title as a mark of respect, right? By fivefold calling, I think I'm a teacher. In the circle that we sh to which we relate, we even discourage the use of the terms apostle and prophet at our conferences. No big deal. They introduce themselves as, I'm Thamo Naidu, I'm Seki Governor, I'm Sam Solon. Yet these men hold weight and stature and authority in the realm of the Spirit. When you know who you are in Christ, you don't need an appendage or a prefix before your name to introduce you. A word doesn't introduce you. Who you are and what you do introduces you. Your legacy is not bound up in some descriptor. Your legacy is bound up in who you are and what you do and the execution of your task and responsibilities before the Lord. Question, is Jesus an apostle? Well, the Bible clearly says in Hebrews, let's, let's, let's consider him. It says in the book of Hebrews, the great apostle, chief apostle, our Lord Jesus Christ. Does he insist on the use of the word apostle every time you address him? <laughs> he likes his name. Don't we just call him Jesus? Right? When, when we feel the need to be a bit more formal or uh, a need to address him by, as a mark of worship or adoration, King of kings, Lord of lords, we give all of these as scriptures. But his name is Jesus. Okay? So tell your neighbor, love your name. Right? Love your name. Love your name. Don't listen. It's not wrong to use. Please don't misunderstand me. Not wrong to use the title. 
it is prideful to kindly insist upon it. Right? Not wrong, but prideful to kindly insist upon it. Listen carefully. Particularly when you lay great store by the title to bolster up your authority in the function that the title purports you to, to have sway in. So I want to encourage you, uh, just do the work and let your work speak to who you are. Don't sound who you are and you've got nothing to show for the title. Rather do the work and let the work demonstrate all that God has called you to do. Yeah. Amen? Hallelujah. Right, that's fine. Okay? You know why? It's subtle. You might think, of why are you hopping on such an uh, elementary thing? It's very, 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 very subtle. Then listen carefully. Feelings of entitlement. This I, I briefly touched on last week. Feelings of entitlement or expectations. You have expectations of how you should be handled, how you should be received, how you should be treated, how people should respond to you. You have the expectation. When the expectation is not met, you are depressed. But your expectation or your depression has just manifested your pride. Right? Right? So if they don't honor you to the degree that they should... No big deal. Tell you never, no big deal. You don't go to any context having any expectation upon your person. Right? If the, the classic example here is Naaman, remember? Naaman, the Syrian prince, the Syrian commander, leprosy, came to Israel. Elisha was there. Right? And he. When he came to Elijah's house, the Bible says he stood outside Elijah's house. And how did Elijah respond to him? Elijah sent a servant to go give him the news. Listen, chap, go to the River Jordan and go dip yourself seven times. The River Jordan was the dirtiest river in Israel. This is a, an Assyrian commander. Naaman is the epitome of pride. So is Syria. From where he comes. Right? Now, the Bible says he thought. He says, who does this Elijah think he is? I thought he would come stand. You know what the Bible says? I thought he would come stand by his doorway, greet me, wave his hands, and heal me. <laughs> Expectation of how God should have worked, how I should have honored. Does he know who I am? He's sending a slave girl to greet me, to give me news. For me to go dip into the dirtiest river in Israel. He even said, oh, are there not better rivers here? Right? What was God doing? Dealing with the pride. Right? You have an expectation. You know? So, you know, this is very important. Let me, you know, I'm speaking life reality now. You're going to save yourself a lot of disappointment, a lot of hurt. If you go to any context, you feel you should be honored in a certain way. And if, and if it's not meted out, don't, no big deal. Right? Because you've, you, you're humble in your, in your disposition. Okay? Humble in your, in, your dispos, in, your, in your heart and in your disposition. Then, eighthly, I spoke about stubbornness. I don't want to go there because we dealt thoroughly with that last week. Amen? No more stubbornness in the house, I hope. Amen? Everybody compliant? Okay? We, we uprooted that stubborn thing last week. Okay? Stubborn... Um, Stubbornness is a serious, serious issue. Ten. Listen carefully to this one. Excuse me. Wanting recognition and acknowledgement and praise 
for every significant or positive development or result produced in the kingdom through some effort of yours. Okay, you were involved with something, it was, and it produced some positive results. You added value to a process, your role was key. And you insist on wanting recognition for that. You've just manifested your proudful heart. Right? Now, I want to read two portions of scripture in reference to this. Okay? Listen carefully. Do you think that everything you do is because of you? Hey? Is every result positively produced solely because of you and your efforts alone? Even if it is, even if you're the only one involved in the process, the fact that you generated the result is a God-given ability. So take yourself out of, this, out of the equation and defer the glory to the Lord. Right? Defer the glory to the Lord. I'm dealing with very fundamental things that are going to cause you to uphold the magnitude of the breakthrough God's going to bring to you. When you are, like Uzziah, strong and you are marvelously helped by the Lord. Right? At that critical point, don't be like him and start the regression because of, of, of pride. Okay? 1 Corinthians 15 from verses 7 to 11. 1 Corinthians 15 from 7 to 11. Just watch. Paul says, then he appeared to James and to all the apostles. This is Jesus. Paul is saying, he appeared to Jesus, the Lord Jesus appeared to James and to all the other apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Remember on the road to Damascus, he had this revelation of the Christ, right? What, notice his humility, the next verse. He says, because I'm least of all of these guys. Paul he says, you consider these guys, these 12 apostles of the Lamb, put me below them. I'm least of all the apostles. Right? I'm least of all the apostles. I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But, remember that we, we examined this text before? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored more than them all. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I like what he says. Whether then it was I or they, we preached you believed. Porting, no big deal who God used when. Point is, you believe, you were preached to, you believe, glory to God. Whether James, me, in fact, even when I work, it's not me, it's grace. So I'm taking myself out of the equation. It's the grace of God that you so operative in me. We preached, you believe, glory to God. Amen. Look at this text, Philippians 2 from verse 12. Listen carefully. Philippians 2, I think it's from verse 12. So then, my beloved, just as you always have obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence. It's important to obey in the absence of being policed. Many people are compliant when there's a policing person. right? But take away the, the policing oversight and you lead, you, you're called upon to, to manage yourself. right? Some people need external management, but the highest form of management is self-management. Where you can manage yourself. In other words, you do the right thing when no one's looking. It's called integrity. Right? So Paul, Paul writes in the Philippians, he says, So then, my beloved, you have always obeyed, not just only when I'm around. You've obeyed only also in my absence, much more in my absence. And notice what he says work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And I like what he says in the next verse. For it is God. 
who works in you both to will and to work for his for his good pleasure he you know what he's really saying he's saying even when you do the right thing and you're obedient and i'm not around even at that point you can't say wow randolph you're still obeying and tom was not even here to watch you well done bro you can't even say that he says even that obedience is purely a reflection of god working in you god is working in you right so you can't even take the glory right? you can't even take the glory do you know even when you repent if you sinned and you said come to the lord say, lord i'm sorry you know romans chapter 2 says it's the kindness of god that leads men to repentance you messed up and you came and said lord i i made a big bungle up i'm sorry lord the lord forgives you you can't stand and say wow i messed up i said sorry hey i did well at least i came back other people don't come back no you can't even say that the fact that you came back <laughs> purely indicates that god was kind to you says the kindness of god led you to repentance yeah is god being good to you you know, whenever I repented, God, if it wasn't, you know, just thank you for the fact that I can even say sorry for what I've done. It's purely an expression of your kindness. You know, people can even be proud in how they've repented. <laughs> it, it negates the very nature of repentance. To bow the heart and be humble and appeal for the mercy of God. I don't know whether we'll have time to explore, but make a note that some of you must study this. Study the life of Hezekiah in the Bible. God pronounced hectic judgment on the guy. But you know what the Bible says? He, and, and death, God said, you're going to die. I'll kill you now. <laughs> you know what the Bible says? He humbled his heart before God and he peeled like the tax collector. The, the, the sense of his, his mess up got to him. He said, God, forgive me and please spare my life. The Bible says, and the, God, the scripture says, and the Lord saw how he humbled himself. And the Lord added, I think it's 15 or 30 more years to his life. God simply postponed his death. Simply because of his hum humble heart. His humility of heart. Amen. So, please, I don't want any of this anymore. Well done. No more. The hands must go up. Praise you, God. No more. See how good I See how faithful I am. See what a good son in the house I am. No more of that. Your service is unto God. And not as a man pleaser. It's unto the Lord. There's a lovely text in Luke 17.10. I like this. This is becoming now my... Luke 17.10 is becoming like my um, key point of reference for me. Standard. If ever I do something and it's successful, this must be said. Jesus said to us, I don't have time to do this parable. It's a long parable. But the punchline of the parable, Jesus concludes by saying, So too... When you have done all things which are commanded of you, say, we are unworthy slaves or servants. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Yes. Finished and clear. Right? So you are expecting great accolades from what you have done. Jesus, no, 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 no. After you've done all that you've done, just say, Lord, I'm an unworthy servant. Let's say if the Lord says to me, Randall, if you lived your life on the earth and you did X, Y, Z for me, you preached in conferences, you helped people mature in me, 
etc. Well done, my good and faithful servant. My response must be, I'm unworthy. I've only done what I should have done. No, no big deal. Don't make a big deal by the things you do. Right? You give to the poor, but you want to publish it in the newspaper. Only get coverage over the good deed. Right? Do your good work quietly. Let God who sees in secret reward you publicly. Amen? But pride will always prevent your, your breakthrough. Another one, number 11, self-praise. Self-praise. Oh, as you can see, all of these are linked. Right? Self-praise. Uh, have you ever met a person that praises themselves? It is so distasteful. It is so off-putting. Even if you're praising yourself for something significant, the fact that you praise yourself takes away from the significance of your act, the good act that you have done. Okay? So don't, don't, um, don't, don't give acknowledgement to yourself. Let others do it. And even when others do it, defer the glory back to God. Okay? Consistently defer the glory back to God. Proverbs 27 verse 2 says, Let another praise you and not your own mouth. <laughs> the scripture says it like so clearly. Let another praise you and not your own mouth. A stranger and not your own lips. I'll tell your neighbor we're serving notice to self-praise. Never must it leave your lips. Let me just use Andy as an example. You're right in the front. Never must Andy stand in the middle and say, well done, Andy. <laughs> he did well today. Right? Self-praise. Or in, your, in the context, you know what I did today? Wow. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> if you are going to be praised, let, let somebody else's lips do it. But don't let your own lips praise yourself. Okay? Proverbs 25, 27. It is not good to eat, eat honey, much honey. Right? Who loves much honey here? Nor is it glory to search out one's own glory. Right? You're searching out your, your own glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17 and verse 18. He who boasts is to boast in the Lord. For it is not he who commends himself that is approved, approved but he whom the Lord commends. The greatest commendation anybody could receive is a commendation from God himself. When men praise you, it's fine. But if the Lord endorses you in some fashion as unique to his nature is, it's the greatest feeling. When the Son of God is baptized by John and he's raised up out of the water and the heavens open and a God from the heavens says, my son. You know, to hear those words, my son, I'm happy with you. It's, it's the best feeling on the planet. Okay, the validation of your heavenly father as to the accuracy of your person and the power of your sonship is, is the greatest feeling um, ever. Okay? So, self-praise. Now, the next one, I don't know, it's a bit too long. I'm, I may come back to it in a moment. But what I really want to, I felt to focus on today, and maybe just spend some time here, a manifestation of pride, listen carefully, is when... You are knowledgeable by information or revelation, and you become prideful by that. This is something apostolic people need to watch very closely. You know so much, you see so much, 
you have so much revelation. Isn't it uncanny that grace comes to you by the word of the Lord? Not so. Grace is packaged in the word. I taught you this. That word contains knowledge, information, revelation. It comes to you. If when it comes to you, it makes you proud, the very medium designed to impart the grace, if you respond to it inaccurately, can be the greatest inhibitor to grace. Right? So please, please listen. The means God has earmarked for you to receive great grace, if you respond to it proudfully, becomes the means itself has just surfaced or, or manifested in your own life to be the greatest inhibitor of grace that you know. Right? Do you know Paul? Why was Paul given a thorn in the flesh? He said, he said, because of the abundance of revelations given to me, right? there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, comma, the messenger of Satan to buffet me. Some trial, significant trial, that Paul went through that God refused to take away. He said, for this thing, I've sought the Lord three times. He said, I sought the Lord thrice. But the answer came back the same every time. The answer was, my grace is Sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. The next verse says, Paul says, Therefore most gladly will I rejoice in sufferings, in infirmities, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. But picture this. Theologians for years have argued, what was that thorn in the flesh? He doesn't describe it. He just says, a messenger, he describes it as being buffeted left, right, and center by some uh, uh, demonic agency of oppression that God allowed in Paul's life. And you know why? Did Paul sin? No. Why was this allowed? Simply because of Paul's access to revelation. He says, because of the abundance of revelation given to me. And he says this, lest I should be exalted above measure. Let me just say, don't underestimate the intoxicating power of truth. Don't underestimate the intoxicating, uh, disturbing, unsettling power of revelation. The more you know, the greater the propensity for pride. And he says, abundant revelation, and notice his terms. You'll find this in 2 Corinthians 12. Lest I should be exalted above measure, God permitted a trial in my life to keep me humble. Who wants to pray this prayer? Lord, Whatever it takes, keep me humble. A dangerous prayer to pray, eh? But who's prepared to pray that? You know, I'm prepared to pray that, Lord, if you're going to lead me into greatness, don't let what you're leading me into lead, puff me up so much that what you led me into becomes the start of my breakdown. You know, as, who loves the Apostle Paul? Here we all do, eh? I think he stands as an icon in the New Testament. To know the apostle was given the mystery of the church. You would think the mystery of the church would have been given to the apostle. Not so. But it was given to this apostle. Do you know who you thought would have written about the table of the Lord? Maybe one of those other twelve who celebrated the table of the Lord with Christ. But in Paul in Corinthians he says, For I have received... From the Lord, that which I also delivered unto you. That the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread. 
right? And he, and, he, and he broke it and he blessed it. He also took the cup and he blessed it, saying, eat and drink. Do this as often as you do in remembrance of me. Who was that revelation given to? Who insisted that the church celebrate this every time you meet? Paul. You would think that revelation and responsibility be given to those who actually practice it with the Lord. My point is, Paul was the recipient of some of the greatest revelations. And you know what? He knew this thing has the potential to puff me up. That's why he makes deliberate statements. James and all the other apostles. Immediately he says, I am the least of all of them. Right? I'm, I'm low. If you want to rank me, put me below everybody else. And he says, lest for the abundance of revelations given to me, there was given, lest I become puffed up above measure. He says, God deliberately allowed a trial in my life to ensure my humility. Dr. Sege said in, Cape, in, in Port Shepston last week, he said, if you don't humble yourself, God will humiliate you. You choose the humiliation is not destructive. It's redemptive. But he said, you either humble yourself willingly, hear the word and simply obey, or let God order some sufferings for you to teach you humility. But either way you will learn. And he said this, there's the shortcut and there's a long way. Now who wants to go the long way? By the way, the long way is the hard way. Learn the lessons quickly through instruction than to learn the lesson the hard way through suffering. Learn the lesson quickly through instruction than to learn the lesson the hard way through, through suffering. When did the prodigal decide to go back to his father's house? When? Only when he was in the pigsty. Sometimes the pigsty talks very loud to you and has the capacity to convince you that, hey, you need to adjust your, you need to adjust your position. So knowledge puffs up. First Corinthians, listen carefully. First Corinthians 8, chapter 8, from verse 1 to 3. Listen carefully. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes what? Knowledge makes arrogance. But what does edify? Love edifies. Now please listen careful, uh, carefully, brethren. Paul is contrasting knowledge leading to arrogance on the one hand and pride and love leading to edification on the other hand. And which, which one would you choose, by the way? L obviously, love which edifies, right? He says, knowledge makes one arrogant, but love will lead to the edification of the, of the brothers. 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, verse 2, says the following. Listen carefully. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge. Everyone say all knowledge. So I'm talking about knowledge's capacity to puff up. Revelation's capacity to make one arrogant. The preferred alternative is the demonstration of love. Paul in this context here says, I can have the gift of prophecy. You prophesy accurately, no problem. You know all mysteries. You can, you can decode any mystery in the scripture. Your revelation is great. Paul says, no problem. But the Bible says, even if you have all faith, you can move mountains. Right? But if you do not have love, 
you are nothing. Right? You are Luto. Right? You've come to nothingness in the rank and esteem in the kingdom of God without love. 1 Corinthians 13 verse 4 says, Love is patient. Love is kind. It's not jealous. It does not brag. If you are braggart, a boaster, want to pat yourself on the back, you've just manifested the absence of love. Love never brags. And I like this, it is not, it is not arrogant. It's not arrogant. Now, listen carefully. I want to read this so I don't misrepresent it in how I explain it to you. You know, when I was typing out this note, I thought, Lord, this is like a simple point. Initially, I thought, I mustn't allow my knowledge to puff me up, what I know, even things you've graciously bestowed, the knowing of mysteries, etc., not to leave to arrogance or proud, but I must focus on the preferred alternative, which is love. Okay, the preferred alternative, which is love. Now listen carefully. The potential prideful effects of knowledge are held in opposition to the edifying effects of love. Right? The prideful effects of knowledge versus the edifying effects of, of love. Knowledge breeds pride, which is self-indulgent and selfish, because pride is focused on self. But love, on the other hand, is selfless and is focused on the other. Knowledge, prideful knowledge, is focused on you, but love, by definition, is always has another's benefit as primary in your mind. So you have no problems lowering yourself to lift another because of the, the, the love um, that you have. Okay, So watch. Paul is not saying it's not good to prophesy. He's not saying it's not good to know all mysteries. You must know those things. But he's saying if you have those things but don't have love, you are, you are nothing. So knowledge without love is vanity. Knowledge without love. Revelation without love is, is vanity. Okay? Now listen carefully. By natural standards, listen carefully. I mean, if you go into a room, say full of people, and you encounter an extremely knowledgeable person in the room, and it's impressive, genius. You can unravel and decode even um, mysteries that most people will, will fall by. This is a genius of a mind. Right? Does not that have the uncanny ability to make the person feel important in the room? Right? Don't underestimate the power of knowledge to give you a false sense of importance. Right? Don't, don't underestimate it. Now, by natural standards, knowledge would make someone a man of worth, admiration and respect. But by spiritual standards, love does the same. By natural standards, knowledge, information, makes you a man of credibility, worth, and respect. By spiritual standards, love does the same in the kingdom of God. If you had an alternative between the two, choose love. Pastor Thamo often says, we mustn't be known for our great revelation. We must be known for our great love. We mustn't be known as people that can decode mysteries in the scripture. If you're going to leave a legacy, leave this behind. See how much they loved. 
And I want to prove to you um, from the scripture. Okay? Before I get that, I wrote this. Knowledge per se is not evil. In fact, it is very necessary and essential. For without it, the people of God perish. My people perish for a lack of? We're not decrying knowledge. Listen, we're not putting one up against the other. We're simply uh, uh, giving a caution. The procurement of one without the other makes the other meaningless. It's knowledge with love. In fact, I'll prove to you in a moment. Love is, the, is quintessentially the evidence of true knowledge. You have not come to knowledge. You have not come to knowledge without love. If you have it and don't love, you don't know anything. Even how brilliantly you can articulate it. The evidence that you are truly knowledgeable is how you love. And, and the verse of scripture here, just quickly let me give it to you, that defines this point or illustrates this, is 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. It says, Paul says this, The goal of our instruction is love. I love this portion. Ch check this out. It says the goal of our instruction is what? Is love from where? From a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Now watch. You see, instruction relates to word. Instruction relates to delivery of information and truth designed to increase knowledge and revelation. But Paul says, what is the ultimate objective of that? What's the goal of that? Love. What's the ultimate of your coming to all the Bible studies, sitting through all the conferences, accumulating all the instruction? Paul says the goal of every instruction is that you come to a place of demonstrated love. You know why? Because love always has the other in mind rather than yourself. Knowledge makes you the centerpiece, but love puts the other at the center. It will safeguard you from the prideful, disastrous, and negative, prideful effects of knowledge. When you, you, when, when you appraise the accuracy of that knowledge by how well you love, it, your, 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 your priority on love keeps you humble and totally neutralizes the power of that knowledge to make you proud. Right? Totally. Right? Again, I want to caution us so-called apostolic people. Do not have an inflated opinion. We should be the most humblest people on the, on the planet. Right? Our greatest legacy should be to demonstrate how well we, we love. Let me just read to you the same portion from other versions of the Bible. Amplified says, Whereas the objective and purpose of our instruction and charge is love. The ERV says, My purpose in telling you what to do is to promote love. The ESV, the aim of our charge is love. The Message Bible says, The whole point of what we are urging you to do is simply to love. The NIRV says, Love is the purpose of my commandment. The NIV, The goal of this command is is love. The goal of this command is love. Knowledge or makes one arrogant. Not so. Knowledge makes one arrogant. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1. 
Young's literal translation of the Bible says knowledge puffs up. <gasps> right? Knowledge puffs up. The Bible in basic English says knowledge gives pride, but love gives true strength. Knowledge gives pride, but love gives true, true strength. The NLT, the version Mark read this morning, quotes 1 Corinthians 8 verse 1 as follows. While knowledge makes us feel important, it is love that really builds the church. Do you know how many people, visitors that came here, said they love the love in the place? It's the love. It's a sense of family. It's a sense of togetherness. You know, the, our greatest testimony, brethren, yeah, in our local church, is going to be how well we love. The goal of everything we teach is to produce the nature of love in the house. Because I'm telling you now, God's going to reveal mysteries to us going forward. I know that. We're going to bust new levels of truth open. I know that. And God knows the, the prideful potential of new knowledge. Even for the great apostle Paul, as great as Paul was, God had said to him, you know so much. You've, you know, Paul says, I was caught up into the third heaven. I saw things unlawful for any man to see. He said, I heard things unlawful for men to hear. And lest I should be puffed up, God had to keep me humble. And Paul knew the potential effects of revelation and love to puff up. And in his discourse in writing to Corinthians, later to the Colossians, you will see, to prevent the negative prideful effects of love that makes one arrogant. He said, you rather let the focus on love be the outcome of that knowledge because that love will keep you humble. When last did you actively demonstrate your love to another? Are you so self-focused, inwardly focused, that all you think of is you, yourself, and I? <laughs> huh? oh, me, myself, and my. <laughs> I want to encourage you Focus on another. When I was in Nakala, the last visit, the Lord moved my heart and I knew there were three significant pastors there that are the key men every time we go preach. I mean, of the group of about 100 pastors that gather, these three in particular are lead pastors and it seems favor is rested upon them every time we gather. They are the key men there. And the Lord spoke to me the last time, so I just, bl just blurted out, out of my mouth. We were saying bye-bye to them on the last day. And I said to them, I would, I would like you guys to meet my father in the Lord, Apostle Thamo. But you must come to a school. Now these are impoverished pastors. Two of them started building their houses now. Almeida and Costa. This world has radically altered their whole outlook. Blessing of the Lord. Uh, Sean, and, Sean and Fiona's father have been instrumental in helping them get the houses with contributions, building supplies, etc. But it's marvelous to see the transformation in these guys. And the Lord, so, the Lord said to me, so as I'm saying to them, I'd love you to meet my father in the Lord and also to, for you guys must meet our bigger family. We've been coming to you, but I want you to know the context from which we come. I want you to introduce you to some of the other brothers, get to know the bigger family. And the Lord said to me, pay for everything because these guys can't afford it. Right? Pay for everything. So it's getting three passes over plus the interpreter, Brasilio, four, right? And um, so we've just spent almost close to 30,000 rand paying for flights just to and from. I want to make this statement to you now. When you, you see, we're saving money for our building. 
Now the rational mind says, but you're saving money for your building. The Lord said to me, but these are your brothers that are f- I have an economic need, but you want to upgrade them. Now demonstrate your capacity to help them. And you know that you know, your mind works? <laughs> but we had to obey the Lord. Okay? So on your behalf, we did that. Okay? We sold that money. Right? I want you to know this. That, that we took some of that money and we are sponsoring four pastors in need that come from economically depressed areas to come because I know the grace that these guys are going to receive from that context. When they go back, it's going to take our, our efforts into that area on a much... It's going to, it's, don't, don't see rands and cents. See purposes of the Lord being accomplished. Listen, whenever I think of why do I do the things I do, God said to me, and I even do this, I said, Randolph, so long as purpose is accomplished. And I click in my office, so long as the purposes of God are done. Don't, put, don't attach a figure to the purposes of God being accomplished. What God authorizes, God will resource. Because we're going in two weeks' time for the school there. Okay? And so it's going to be a marvelous thing. But listen carefully. What's the point in us teaching them all that we know. We go there every, about twice or three times a year to Nakala. What's the point in all of this revelation we're giving them and they can't see in us a capacity to demonstrate love? You know what Bible, the Bible says? Love gives. Love gives. Love is not, uh, 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 love is a verb. Right? It's not a noun. It's, it's, it's something you, something you do. You know what? Every time you do, you place less emphasis on your need. Our need right now is to save the money. And t- what if a building comes up? And now we've re- now we're saying, Lord, our need secondary. This need is priority. So we demonstrate the the love of God to people, right? So you can keep yourself humble by excelling in love. You can avoid the effects of pride by just being more loving. We have beggars that come to our house. Our house, I don't know. The guys in the area just know. You can come there. <laughs> okay. We have three or four of them. They are regulars, like weekly. And Renee is very kind and generous to all the guys. Jules knows. In working at the office, we just hear that, that gate rattle. Da, 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 da. We even know by the rattle who's there. Oh, that one is there today. They've got this particular way they, they knock at the door, as it were. You know? And sometimes when you get busy in the day, oh, these guys... God and make them something. But I want to encourage you, rather excel in that than excel in your revelation. You do the business of love. Do the business of love and keep your heart humble before the Lord. Okay? Um, Don't let people take advantage of you. You know, I want to do a whole series on love. Love is not always kind. You must examine 1 Corinthians 13 very carefully. There are some things which is love is always, and you give a certain. But when it comes to certain things, it's just love is this, but it's not always that. Yeah? You've got to be very strongly discerning. So when I say excel in love, you, you do so with discernment. Amen? And keep your heart, keep your heart humble. Okay, I need to wrap up. Keep your heart humble. The Bible says, First um, John 4, 7, we'll close with this. You know this text very well, beloved. Let us love one another, for love is from God. Who remembers the Sunday school song? Beloved, 
Let us love one another. For love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God, and knoweth God. He that loveth not, knoweth not God, for God is love. Beloved, let us love one another. First John 4, 7 and 8. This song, this, this passage is so powerful. You know the Bible says, He that loveth not does not know God. Right? For love is of God, and everyone that loves is born of God and knows God. Amen? So are you going to love more? Yeah? The, the excel, excelling in love is key to being humble. It's key, absolutely vital to being humble. Love is the quintessence of the divine nature. It's the essence of divinity. If you, you can master divinity if you master love. I'm telling you, brethren, if you master, you want to master deity, you want to master godness, master love. Paul says, I'm not concerned about your revelation, how much you know. You can bamboozle all the apostolic people, but you don't have love. Paul says, in my eyes, in the kingdom, you rank nothing. He who loves ranks far greater than he who knows mysteries, but is unable to demonstrate the goal of the outcome of that instruction, which is love, Scripture says, from a pure heart and faith unfeigned, undefiled. Amen. Let's bow in prayer. Father, forgive us where we've fallen prey to some of the indicators of pride that we've mentioned and discussed today. Keep us humble. As, as you grow our knowledge and as we increase in knowing you by revelation, may we always seek to excel in love, to love others as you love them. May that be our total priority. We ask, O oh God, that because when we do this, even our our pursuit of the love, we know that we will recruit greater grace because you will see a humble heart that loves like you do. So we pray great grace and peace. I pray that we would be amongst the most loving people that we know. Help us to master love, to master relationships, to give to others, to place them as priorities over our own selves. For we ask this in your name. Amen and amen. Amen.